Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. For those of us who have been around some, you would know, maybe you're newer this morning, and welcome if you are online or here in person, um, that we are spending an entire year taking a look at one thing, the kingdom of God, what is it, and how do you live in it? Kingdom of God, what is it, and how do you live in it? And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the gospel of Mark. This is going to be a beginning uh, of that 12-week series where we're literally going to walk through the gospel of Mark from front to finish. And by the end, the prayer is that we'll be familiar with Mark and his gospel as well as Jesus in the kingdom of God. But in order to begin every sermon, we're always going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And the reason is the epicenter of that prayer is that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done in earth in, on, in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together. This then is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in Charlottesville, as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. So this week, um, I don't ask for your forgiveness, I ask for your attention. Um, But this sermon is going to be much more of an in-depth teaching than it is preaching. Because I have a passion and a burden this morning, and that is, is that we would understand the gospel of Mark, and that we would understand what Mark is going to be sharing with us. So in just a moment, we're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses, but we're going to really focus primarily on the first three verses of the first chapter of Mark. Now... What I want us to kind of get through our minds and our hearts is that, well, kind of before we get there, what I wanted to just kind of let you know is who is Mark? Mark is actually, his name is John Mark. He was a disciple of the apostle Peter. So if you want to know how Mark wrote his gospel, he followed around the apostle Peter, who was in the inner circle with Jesus, and Mark heard all of the stories that Peter told over and over and over again about who Jesus was. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes down his gospel, the gospel of Mark. Now, what's important to know is the gospel of Mark is written to Romans. And you and I sitting here, believe it or not, are very Roman. Turn to your neighbor and say, you look like a Roman. You're a Roman. Now, what's cool about the Gospel of Mark, just so you know, biblical scholars will tell you it's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's the most fast-paced. Biblical theologians call it the reader's digest of story of Jesus. It has the essentials in it. One of the things you're going to notice is chapter 1, verse 1, never mentions the nativity. Actually, only two of the four Gospels mention the birth of Jesus. It kind of lets us know what the original gospel writers felt was important. 
Mark, in writing and penning his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not believe the nativity is important for you to know who Jesus is. But how many of you are going, wait a minute, I love Christmas. I love getting presents. How dare Mark short-circuit the gift-giving on December 25th? How dare he do But what he does is he looks at the story of Jesus, listens to all of Peter's stories, and he writes down his gospel, and he does not begin with the nativity. He begins with John the Baptist. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to lay the foundation for the gospel of Mark, and next week we're going to take an in-depth look at John the Baptist. So what we're going to do is we're now going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And as we do, just kind of know this, that the gospel of Mark has three distinct phases. The first phase is Jesus' ministry around Galilee. The second phase is when Jesus begins to travel and his disciples struggle terribly with who he is. And then the last phase is his death, burial, and resurrection. What happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem? So the last third of this book is entirely about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, all right? Three phases. So we're getting ready to step into the first phase where we are introduced to Jesus by Mark, and what we're going to discover over the next five weeks is what Jesus does in and around Galilee exemplifies who he is so that we can believe the way Mark does. All right, so Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Here's what the text says. John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the, what are the next two words? Now notice in parenthesis, I've got the word gospel. We're going to come back to that. That is mission critical to understand any of the gospels. So we're going to come back to that. The NIV uses two words there, good news, when it really ought to just say the beginning of the gospel. Reading on about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, pushing the pause button, right there in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark tells you what he believes to be true about Jesus and never gives any commentary again. One quick sentence, he tells you what he believes, and the rest of the gospel, he's just uploading stories about Jesus so that you and I have a shot at coming to his conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Reading on, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who prepare your way. That's Malachi 3.1. We're going to get to that in a moment. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. We're going to get to that in a moment. Reading on, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. By the way, next week, we're going to take an in-depth look at John the Baptist. Who was he and why is he so important? Reading on, the text tells us, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. So just so you know, John the Baptist was the Billy Graham of his day. He was the most famous religious figure in all of Israel. Reading on, it says... Everyone countryside, all Jerusalem goes out, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of, what's his clothing made of? Camel's hair and what? A leather belt around his waist. That becomes critical to understand who John is. We're going to get to that in a moment as well. 
So John wore, um, wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate what none of us ate for breakfast. He ate bugs and honey. Half of that works for me. The other half does not. But it says that he ate locusts and wild honey, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. So the most famous religious figure in all of Israel saying, if you think I'm something, you ought to see the next guy. And here's what he says. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize, I baptize you with or in water, but he will baptize you with or in the Holy Spirit. So what we have now is Mark's introduction to Jesus and also to John the Baptist. Now again, I'm asking for your attention, not your forgiveness. This sermon is far more teachy than most. But I want us to truly understand the gospel of Mark so that when we jump into it, we actually have a shot of getting everything that God wants to say to us through it. So Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Here's what Mark writes. The beginning of the, what are the next two words? Good news. Whenever you see good news in the Newer Testament, it's a translation of one Greek word that means gospel. So it really should or could have read the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And again, Mark 1.1 is the only time Mark tells you what he thinks. The rest, he just uploads stories. Now, here's what's so important for all of us to understand. Anytime you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you are reading a gospel what you're reading. Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John. There's four of them. Four different perspectives on Jesus, all of them true, for four different audiences. Mark is written to Romans. Now, what we have to understand is that that word gospel, which the NIV just translated as good news, is very specific. It's a unique technical term that everyone at the time of Jesus, knew what it meant. Now, let me tell you what good news doesn't mean, but you're going to kind of help me. So, how many of you in the last month have received good news? Raise your hand. Seriously, raise it up really high. Last month. Anyone want to shout out what your good news is? What? What was it? Legos? That's amazing news. That's not just good news. That's amazing news. Someone else, good news. Your anniversary, how many, Mike? 40 years. Barbara deserves a medal, trust me. So congratulate, 40 years. Isn't that good news? It's good news. Someone else, good news. Birthday, I won't ask. Birthday, hallelujah, another one. Someone else. Okay, 60th. She went and said it. I didn't ask, but you offered. 40 years of marriage, 60 years circling the sun. Good news. Someone. What else? Good news. You're going to be an uncle, which means a baby, boy or girl. Do you know? Not yet. Fair enough. All right? Outside under the tent, the outdoor service, the good news was someone's going to have an, their sixth uh, baby grand. Someone else is three weeks from the birth of their third son. Good news. Now listen, is good news 
as good as that news is, all of this, and as good of the news of things like, I got the job, or I got accepted into the college, or the exam I thought I failed, I passed. Good news. As good news as cheeseburgers are. I love cheeseburgers. Just love them. Jesus would have eaten them, but they're not kosher, so he can't. But other than that, cheeseburgers, man, such good news. Someone says, let's meet, let's go for cheeseburgers. I'm in, just totally in. As good news as Fran cooking cheeseburgers is, as good news that you got into the college you wanted or the grad program or you got the job, whatever the good news is that you think about with good news, the babies, birthdays, anniversaries, all that, none of it qualifies for euangelion, good news, gospel. None of it. Not even close. Because you see, the Greek word, good news, is translated into English as gospel. Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First sentence here says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Here we go. Good news, translated gospel, comes from the Old English, which means God's spell. It's a good thing. But in Greek, it's the Greek word euangelion. And I want you to turn to your neighbor and point at them and say, you, euangelion. Just, it's weird, I know, just do that. Euangelion. All right, now, the reason why I'm doing it is because euangelion is a Greek word. EU means good. And angelion means announcement or message. And if you can see in angelion the word angel, you should. Because angel in Greek simply means messenger. It's all it means. Not good or bad, just means messenger. So euangelion is good message or good news. But what's interesting to note is in the Older Testament, the Hebrew word that euangelion comes from is the Hebrew word basar. And basar is only used with the announcement of kings. It's the only time it's ever used. For instance, when David's armies win a battle and he retains his throne, it says someone runs into the, the castle, he runs into the palace and says to David, Basar, your armies have won. He retains the throne. When his son Solomon takes over David's throne, there is an announcement through the entire kingdom of Israel and it's Basar, Solomon has taken his father's throne. In other words, the only time Basar is ever used is for the announcement of kings and kingdoms. It's the only time. And so here's what we need to understand. Gospel is a very specific type of good news. As good news, being 60 years old, being married 40 years, having cheeseburgers for lunch, as good of news as that is, is that gospel is a very specific type of good news. Gospel always equals royal announcements of world-changing events, such as a victory in battle that changes the course of a nation, the birth of an heir to the throne, or the arrival of the king to a city. That's the only time gospel, euangelion, is used. So at the birth of Caesar Augustus and the celebration of his birthday, 
Runners went out over the entire Roman world, and there was a euangelion to the entire Roman world that a new calendar was being established, and it was going to be based on Caesar Augustus. It changed how everyone saw the world. So when Mark steps up and says, my gospel, my euangelion, guess what it is? It's an announcement of a king and a kingdom that can change your world if you'll let it. It will change your world. It will change everything about who you are, about how you see the world, you see yourself, and you see life. So Mark's announcement is very, very important. He says the beginning of the euangelion about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, every time you read the word gospel or good news, I want you to think of royal fanfare and announcement. So the gospel, Mark's gospel, I want you to think this. And the Queen of England just walked into the room. That's the fanfare before the Queen walks in. My mom was born and raised in England. We were raised with British perspective in some ways. Every time you see the word good news, I want you to hear the fanfare of the announcement of royalty. Don't miss it, or you're going to miss the meaning of the gospel. So right out of the gate, we're told that this story is about a king and a kingdom. It's about the story of a king and a kingdom. Now, what's interesting to note, though, is that in the Older Testament, when the prophets were besarring about a king, they were in a dilemma. Because in the Older Testament, what we know is the prophets looked at the kings around them, they looked at the kings behind them, and when they did, they grieved. Because most of the kings of Israel were rotten to the core. They were honestly terrible human beings. Many started off well and just totally, the air goes out of the tires. So what we have then is we've got these Older Testament prophets like Isaiah, like Malachi, and they look at the, how Israel is around them. They look at the kings that are reigning over them. And when they do, they go, Houston, we have a problem. And the problem is the kings are bad, so the kingdom's bad. And in the depths of their despair, they would begin to cry out to God. And God would say, there's a new euangelion coming. God promises through the prophets that in the future there would be a king. So here the prophets like Isaiah and Malachi are living in the midst of total dysfunction and depravity with a priesthood that's not serving God and people that don't serve God. And in the midst of this, the first chunk of the book of Isaiah up through chapter 39 is about God's judgment and his anger at his people. And then in verse 40, a switch is flipped and there's a king that's coming. And he will rule and reign with righteousness and grace 
and mercy. The book of Malachi comes in three chunks, and the first chunk is what they're doing wrong. The second chunk is God's judgment, and then the third chunk of the book of Malachi, just like Isaiah, the prophet begins to look into the future as he is surrounded with brokenness and dysfunction and evil and priests that aren't walking with God. And God gives him a vision into the future where there will be a new euangelion. There will be the announcement of a king who will finally come and he will serve others instead of himself. And when his kingdom begins to advance in and through your life, when that good news, when that gospel, when that euangelion, Evangelion gets a hold of you, you will finally find shalom for your soul. And the prophets spoke of that day with passion and excitement. And so what Mark does when he begins to look at the idea of Jesus, we pick up the two verses that the, he brings to us from the Older Testament we read, as we read in the initial reading, I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way? That's Malachi 3.1. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's Isaiah chapter 40. And what fascinates me no end is that when Mark begins to present John the Baptist who will present Jesus, he very carefully pulls two passages. The first one, again, is from Malachi chapter 3, and that's the shift in the book of Malachi, where all of a sudden it goes from God's correction and pointing out sin and God's judgment till all of a sudden the text opens up and suddenly God begins to bring hope and peace and a new euangelion that's going to step into the world. Now what you'll notice if you look at your Bible... Two-thirds of it is the Older Testament. The most profound pieces of this are when the prophets look to the future and say there's a new king coming and a new kingdom. The very last book of the Older Testament is the book Malachi. If you're Italian, it's Malachi, but Malachi. And if you would notice that it's fascinating that the very last thing that you read in the Older Testament is chapter 3 on, where the prophet says, he lives in a messed up world, and God's judgment is coming. But in chapter 3, he announces good news, that a king will come. And all of Jesus' contemporaries were pondering chapters 3 and 4 of Malachi, because that's how the Older Testament ended. And they were praying for and longing for a king who would come that would finally rule and reign with justice and righteousness. Not only does he use Malachi chapter 3, but Mark also uses Isaiah chapter 40. God's judgment and correction comes, Isaiah's chapters 1 through 39, and a switch is flipped in Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah 40, what we discover is that all of a sudden, God begins to look at the corruption that's around the prophet Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah, I know it's bad. I know it's corrupt. I know the priesthood is in trouble. 
Isaiah even prophesies that Assyria and Babylon is going to come and destroy Jerusalem because of their wickedness. That's Isaiah 1 through 39. But in 40, the prophet switches and he begins to announce a basar. A king is coming. And when he comes, he will rule and reign with righteousness. But what's so fascinating about Isaiah chapter 40, what's so fascinating is that Isaiah 40 begins to describe this king. And it sounds awesome at first. And then you get to chapters 49 through 53, and it gets really odd. Because here is the prophet announcing the euangelion of a new king and a new kingdom. And it brings hope, and it brings a sense that God is still with his people. Even in the midst of the darkest of times, God is still with you. Because in the future, a new king is coming, and he will usher in a new kingdom. And it's so exciting. And then you get to Isaiah 39. I'm sorry, you get to Isaiah 49 through 53. And you read about this king, and you go, really? Because here's what Isaiah says, this king will not come to serve himself. He's going to come and serve you. And when he serves, people are going to get a hold of him, and they're going to begin to torture him and beat him and kill him. This king is a king who will lay down his life for you. He will surrender himself to everything that hell has to offer he will surrender himself into the corruption and the dysfunction and the brokenness of this world. But Isaiah 53 says, when you see this, you will know that your king has come. He's going to be beaten and scourged. But because he serves and he lays down his life, you will have life. Because he surrenders, you will have victory. Because he lays down, you can stand up. Because of the dysfunction in the brokenness of this world, kings always live above that. They don't want to be a part of it. This king's going to jump right into the middle of the soup. And when he does, you'll know God's king is here. Watch for him. Isaiah 53. He will be beaten and rejected and mocked. And when you see that, you'll know it's him. It's him. The euangelion will have finally come. And so when you look at how Mark introduces Jesus, he introduces him as the one that the prophets of old were longing to see. He says, this is Jesus, and this is the gospel, the euangelion about him. And Mark says, I believe. Did you know everything that that Old Testament talked about? It's him. It's him. And then he says, if you'll take a ride with me for the next several chapters, I want to reveal to you the Jesus that I know, because he's God's king, and he came to usher in God's kingdom. Let's stand together as we close. As we conclude our time, we're going to move towards a moment of worship. But let's close our eyes in God's presence. I don't know where you're at with Jesus. I don't know where you're at with the good news, the euangelion, the royal announcement of a king and a kingdom. But I would encourage you in this moment as people begin to worship in this sanctuary, 
or maybe you're worshiping with us online and you're worshiping in your home or wherever you watch this sermon, that you would take a moment to open up your heart to Jesus. There is a king who rules and reigns with righteousness and humility, with servanthood and brokenness and gentleness and kindness. He invites you into his kingdom. He invites you to follow him. If you're tired of living in the kingdoms of this world, there's a new king with a new kingdom.